Ladies and gentlemen, you are now tuned in to Office Hours with your host, Robbie Rhodes. All right, who wants to party? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Office Hours. My name is Robbie Rhodes, and I am here with my special guest, Mr. DJ Bleach. How are you today, Bleach? I'm doing really good, Robbie. It's really good to be here. Yeah, welcome to Office Hours. Glad to have you here. So uh, you've been part of a recent coalition in Rhode Island that's raising awareness for homeless people, and you're organizing an event here on the Rhode Island College campus. So why don't you just start us off and uh, talk a little bit about this movement that you're a part of and what it's all about. Okay, so I guess i got to start somewhere near the beginning, um, because for me... My experience started um, as a homeless person, as a constituent. So the perspective that I bring in the field, um, I'm currently placed through the BSW program here at Rick at the Coalition for the Homeless here in Rhode Island. And what so, is what is the BSW program? The Bachelor's of Social Work. Okay. And I also just took a position this year as the vice president of the Bachelor of Social Work organization. So as part of that dual leadership role and placement role in the field, I've tried to strengthen the relationship between the college and the community. And one of those areas that needed some strengthening and really needs some attention throughout the state of Rhode Island and throughout the country is being able to resolve issues around homelessness. Um, I was looking at some statistics this morning um, just to kind of like brush up on the severity of this issue and shed some light in comparisons. I was looking at some of the national mortality rates. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you're probably well aware that the number one cause of death nationwide is cardiac arrest, um, cardiac issues, um, heart troubles. Um, But it was really interesting that prior to the beginning of the end homelessness campaign that was launched nationally, our incident rates of homelessness were actually higher than the rates that people were dying each year from heart attacks. So more people were becoming homeless and dying of being homeless or the homeless death rate in terms of comparative age. Mm -hmm. This is the way that I've looked at it because there haven't been a lot of concrete statistics around analyzing like comparisons between homeless death and national death. Um, it hasn't been put spe- like explicitly mm-hmm. in those terms. Yeah. But the way they've analyzed the data is in terms of the people that do die from homelessness and the average ages and the causes of those deaths. Mm-hmm. People are living with a 36% lower life expectancy. The average expected age of death for a homeless person is actually 49 compared to 77 nationally. So there is a severe impact in the, the quality of life and health mm-hmm. for people living outside. So you basically <clears throat> were homeless for a while yourself, mm-hmm. and you've taken those experiences and tried to make a positive impact on the all-around issue of homelessness. Well, I think that one of the strengths that we have as a, as a body of people in America is that we have the free ability to educate each other. Yeah. And I think that the best way to tackle difficult issues, especially when 
you're dealing with marginalized populations mm -hmm. is to be able to educate people, to be able to produce allies. I think that's one of the, the things that's produced a really strong success for, you know, equal rights for gay marriage. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that turned the tables on that issue was being able to establish allies across the table. And once people came to the table with an understanding of the issue, then legislation was passed that reflected a new understanding. So I feel like that is an important component in being able to work on issues around homelessness. I feel like we don't dedicate enough resources. We don't deal with this issue as if it were a, a fatality-driven issue. This is something that seriously impacts not only the quality of life for the people who are living through homelessness, mm -hmm. but it, it also reduces the efficiency of our economy. And it, you know, and it's looking at this issue as though we're blaming the victims. You know, people who see homeless people on the street are concerned with, you know, the effect on their business and the effect on, like, the aesthetics of the area and their safety. Um, but what they're not concerned about is, like, why these people are there to begin with. You know, we've seen nationally an increase in underhoused and doubled up um, from 2007 to now, 25% because of the effects of economy and the stagnant wages and the shrinking of the middle class and the, the increased burden on our government to be able to care for an increasing, increasingly sizable aged population. I think that there's a lot of these complex issues that are feeding into what we're seeing as a systemic symptom of homelessness. Um, and so finding areas where people are particularly vulnerable and then providing direct support as needed to remediate those issues. I think that's something that as we continue to educate the, the leaders of our future, you know, the people in our colleges, that we're going to find that more and more progressive policy is going to continue to reflect these ideas and be a benefit for people who are suffering and not necessarily because of choices, but as a as a consequence of our economic system mm -hmm. yeah something that troubles me is the amount of homeless veterans that are out there now that's a giant issue the amount of money that our government spends on the military itself but not on the veterans who get out of the military and then are left with ptsd all types of issues um you know in some cases amputations mm -hmm. And they're just basically left with nothing when they come home and they're on the streets and there's not much being done about it. We actually did a fundraiser last year for Operation Stand Down in Rhode Island, which mm -hmm. raises awareness for homeless veterans. So I really got into um, reading the statistics at that time about how many actual homeless veterans there are in the country. And the numbers are, they're stunning, like how many homeless veterans there are in the country and i mean of course there's tons of homeless people that aren't veterans that are still in need of care as well it's wild yeah i i agree and and one of the things that has changed with this war in particular and one of the things that we're seeing now is the the systemic failures around not integrating wraparound supports into va care and not you know engaging veterans immediately upon discharge and mm -hmm. connecting them directly with basic needs. Um, when I got out of the service, I'm a veteran, so I don't 
know mm-hmm. if you knew that, but um, I didn't know that. When did you serve? I served in 2001 to 2003. Okay. And, you know, I was in the air defense. Um, a lot of the guys, like a couple of my close friends, but a lot of people I trained with, almost every one of them got deployed. Um, were you in the Middle East? I wasn't directly deployed to Middle East only because with the, um, the Patriot missile unit Mm -hmm. that I was assigned to, we have a different, we're considered logistical support. Okay. And so we don't see front lines traditionally, Mm -hmm. although there were, there were some mishaps that happened at the beginning of the Iraqi Liberation Tour, and there were some. The, the first POWs came out of a Patriot unit, and those two of the killed in actions were people I trained with that I was close friends with. Oh wow! So that really hit close to home. You mm-hmm. know, it was really hard for me, and I came back home. My family wasn't prepared for me to be home. I didn't really have a stable place to stay. Jody got involved with my fiance. You know, typical, like, life's tough, suck it up, drink water, drive on, military story. Mm -hmm. So I went back down to Texas. You know, I bought a car with my, you know, surplus that I had left up from saving in the military. And I drove back down to the post that I was at. Um, One of the things that I was trying to figure out when I got there was... Where was the bag of my stuff that never got shipped, my stereo that never got shipped, my records that never got shipped. And Hmm. it took me over five years to finally locate those records. In fact, I signed a power of attorney about a year and a half ago with the DAV, and they still haven't given me a response. I've been out for over 10 years without connection to benefits. Just my personal story. And... I had to survive homelessness around that, you know, trying to figure out, like, do I try to go work? Like, is that going to impact my VA claim? Like, can I work? Could I work? A lot of that time, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to deal with civilian providers who really didn't have the kind of care that I needed, being a veteran with PTSD, being separated from the armed forces. Um, a lot of the care that I found for PTSD was predominantly for women, which is great. I think that the incidence rate in women, especially civilian women, is extremely high. And I, I think that it's great that providers take care of that. But there wasn't a lot of support um, to work with veterans of PTSD when I got out. Now, mind you, that was in 2003. And things I understand are much different now. They've you know, implemented some policies that are requiring the VA to step up engagement to turn over results within six months. Um, Whether they're doing that, that varies based on what region you're in. Um, My experience with Rhode Island has been extremely good. And overwhelmingly, the Eastern Connecticut experience, the area that I'm from, has been overwhelmingly good with the Providence VA. So the Providence VA really has stepped up and done a great job. And we see that reflected in our housing statistics. When you look at, we housed, it was almost 4,000 individuals. 3751, I believe, was the last number I looked at. This is, I want to say, a month and a half old, was the number of veterans that we've housed over the last two years into permanent housing. So it's been a huge success, and I think that's it's a huge credit to the VA. Um, I think that it's really important that we look at the supports that have worked really well for veterans and look at the level of resources they're getting and figure out how we can't model that into 
other areas of homelessness placement because we are struggling to be able to place people without that level of support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's basically like leaving people stuck with nowhere to go after you give the ultimate sacrifice to the country. It, It must be kind of a betrayed feeling. I suppose. Well, the alternatives we give people are to go to shelters. Mm -hmm. And for a veteran with PTSD, especially PTSD in an urban setting, has its own implications around, like, triggers and things that make life very difficult. And so shelter environments become a place where veterans particularly don't feel safe because they're not particularly safe environments to begin with. But when you add that extra layer of vulnerability we're generally choosing to stay outside um, and for much longer, which we don't end up being identified by the homelessness management system. It's a, it's kind of a shortage in terms of our ability to identify homelessness. Mm -hmm. I think that Rhode Island has done a great job of stepping up outreach. I think that it's done better than (laughs) some of its neighbors in that department. And I think that's been a huge credit of success, and they're currently integrating new um, data management systems that can be used wirelessly. So they'll be able to work directly with identifying homeless populations, identifying like migratory patterns. If there's like people in a like a scatter sampling in a particular region, then we know that's a region that we need to focus attention on. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to be able to bring a lot more of those frontline services from the office out into the field. And so part of that effort that I've been working with the coalition in identifying and developing my macro project for the social work program as a requirement to to do some macro level work is to establish a stronger relationship with Rhode Island College through the Bachelor of Social Work organization to recruit volunteers to go out and do street outreach. Now, I don't want to get too far into that because it's something that I'm still in the structural process with my supervisor. Mm -hmm. And so she's cautioned me to move slowly and to not get ahead of myself in terms of taking action. We want to make sure that the program and the relationship that's being established here at the school is something that works well for the school, works well for the students, fits with the, the message and the mission of the Coalition for the Homeless, but also has the ability to have some longevity and survive well beyond my time at Rhode Island College and your time at Rhode Island College and um, hopefully grows into something that turns into a significant source of support for the community. I think those relationships are really important for the college to establish, and it helps students with being able to put valuable skills. You know, philanthropy is, is an extremely highly desired quality to see on a resume, especially in the competitive business world. Um, I think that, you know, as we expand our consciousness as a society, that we understand these civic obligations is something that you no longer just must do as a call of duty, but simply that as human beings that occupy a planet, we cohabitate, that what you do or what happens to you affects me. And we see that, you know, throughout our economy, you know, you talk about trickle down economy, but the reason why trickle down economy hasn't worked is because when that doesn't trickle down, it's hurting everybody, you know, all the people at the bottom. And I talked about this at the, the hearing committee, they'd had like, um, 
an informational session mm-hmm. to get some ideas from the community and from community providers around the selection of the new director for the Department of Children and Families in Rhode Island. So I, I spoke out at, at that hearing session and I was talking about, you know, having a leader who understands an inverse model of leadership. So when I say an inverse model of leadership, you think, you know, leadership traditionally has been shown in the pyramid diagram and you see this with pyramid schemes and it's a very common model of business and it usually resides with a centralized board of directors and an executive at the top. Mm -hmm. And then you have the high level management. They usually manage regions. Then you have district managers. Then you have your location managers and so on and so forth. And so from that model of leadership, the decision-making power really all resides in the top and everything else is residual. When you talk about an inverse model of leadership, you have a leadership structure at the top that understands that it's not their decision-making power that drives the agency. You turn it upside down. So now the most important people in that agency, in that business, in that relationship become the people at the very bottom, the frontline people, the people that are getting direct services and the people that are providing direct services. And so from that model of leadership, you know, we see a very different picture. Um, and I think that a lot of our our direction in policy is starting to move in that direction and empowering. We see expansion in, you know, medical marijuana. We see discussions around regulation and ending prohibition and which removes an enormous amount of stigma, which disproportionately affects people in poverty. Mm-hmm. I think that's amazing. Um, and I think that the more we continue to engage people in the college population around these progressive ideas and getting them involved and getting these things on their resume, we not only give them the tools for success in the future, we cultivate a leadership which allows us as Americans to move forward and advance as people and be successful in the world climate and really make a difference. Yeah, letting the people have a voice rather than just some guy at the top of a board making all the decisions, that's really important. Getting everyone involved, especially students, you know, in our generation who might not be very aware of issues like this that you're talking about. I mean, I think it's extremely important that you're spreading these ideas and especially at a college where we have tons of tools and resources to make a change and um so i wanted to i want to ask a little bit so back on your point about how you were homeless after service uh you went down to texas mm-hmm. and uh, how long were you on and off the streets well i started in texas and I, I had met some people while i was in the service that i decided to go stay with um and that didn't turn out to be a very good situation so not long after I wound up in Mexico, um, one of the, the girls in the house where I was living, when I went down there, stole my guitar and pawned it. And I was really upset about that. I'd had that guitar since I was like 10. And it was the first guitar I ever played on. So, you know, I just kind of said, you know what, I'm done with this. And I, I left. I didn't have any success at the military post. Like, I went onto the post. I managed to get access to the unit. I found my stereo. It was sitting in one of the cadre's offices. And I had gone down to JAG, and I filed, like, a formal report. And they had to get a witness. And so I had one of the maintenance workers who was willing to be a witness. But then they came down and told him, you know, basically, if you say anything, that's it. You're done. 
So you weren't able to get any results. I was not able to get a successful result, and I was extremely depressed and discouraged. And so you basically lost all your shit. Well, all, all of the the things that I had paid for, like my initial yeah. issue that you get billed for, um, most of my military equipment, my physical fitness equipment, um, my music CDs, um, some little like action figures that I had, my stereo, my records, all my paperwork. So, I mean, it was a combination of, like, things that I needed to move forward with the VA process that I couldn't. And It was all lost. It was just gone. You know, they when they put you through either pre or post or while you're in deployment, they will generally put your property into lockup, yeah. into a locker. And so my understanding was that my property had been left in the locker like for some reason didn't get grabbed but then when i went down there to try to acquisition it i wasn't able to do that so you know when people go through stuff like that and you know as i'm going through this like i'm watching there was at the time a video of one of the guys that i was in training with um surrendering and to um the iraqi imperial army and they had shot him in the back of the head while he was in surrender with an AK-47. Um, and that hurt, you know. And then I I was helping another buddy of mine um, who came home. He was missing half of his leg. And he, you know, recruited my help to drive his car back to his family because he wasn't allowed to drive. Um, so in the midst of that, like, I had left to go to Colorado to bring him home. I came back. The girl had pawned my guitar. My stuff was tossed. I ended up going to the bar and I met some guy and he was like, ah, I got a place in Mexico. You can come down here. And it's just been, it's a long story, very long story. I wound up with dysentery, almost died. I went to the hospital. Don't even know how I got there because everything was in Spanish. It was really confusing. Um, but I was really, really dehydrated. Like I couldn't get off the toilet. It was one of the scary things in my life. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Um, so it was not long after that, that I wound up drifting, you know, because I just like, I didn't feel safe in Mexico. I didn't mm-hmm. feel safe in America. I didn't really feel like I belonged anywhere, you know, and that, that's an experience I hear from a lot of veterans that come back that they come back home and they don't feel like they have a place. Yeah. Um, and that, that line was never drawn for me for a very long time. So you, you were basically just left with nothing. Your identity, all your records was gone. Yeah. I had that wonderful conversation with the VA where they told me ARCOM had my records. Then ARCOM was telling me, well, they must've been at the post where you got treated so I was like, well, no, I already went down there, and they don't have them either. And they're like, well, then the VA must have them. Like, it's no big deal. I still haven't seen these medical records. Like, oh God. <laughs> I've gotten them sent. They followed me to Colorado, but I was homeless. Mm-hmm. So, like, by the time they got to Colorado, they sent a letter in the mail. They forwarded it to my parents' house. And I was like, I'm in Ohio. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I didn't have anywhere to go. You were just on the road at that point. Yeah, I was just traveling. Yeah. It was a really interesting insight, too, with traveling. Oh, I bet. You must have um, gone all around the country. Well, yeah, and, and I, I panhandled. Like, I mm-hmm. flew signs. And so, like, I got a lot of good experience with what panhandling is like in other parts of the country because mm-hmm. I traveled all over the country on a sign. It was a sign in a gas can, and that was it. And me, my girl, my dog, my car, and then eventually my truck. But, you know, people... 
people were different in other parts of the country. You know, the only place that I've seen people have this level of hostility towards panhandling was in Arizona. Hmm. Arizona was no tolerance for anything like that. I was lucky to get out of Arizona. Um, but other than that, people were usually very friendly and very supportive and very helpful. Um, I picked up a lot of really interesting jobs while panhandling. So it wasn't just like I was standing there with a sign and I wasn't willing to do something. Mm -hmm. I was just not trying to stay where I was at that time. And I think that that also is reflective of people who are struggling or people who are homeless that, you know, maybe it's not, they don't want to stay where they are in the literal sense of like me while I was traveling. I just don't want to stay in your town. Help me get out of here. But they don't want to stay in these situations where they feel trapped. And so, traditionally throughout history and worldwide i've looked into this panhandling arises when people have economic crises mm -hmm. so when the economy suffers when people don't have enough resources they go to the public and it's not just a homeless type of activity you have an entire community of buddhist monks that swear by making their living through only the acquisition of alms right which is the same exact thing, you know. So then it becomes a conversation of you're not only marginalizing these people to the point where they have to go to the public for resources because they're not able to meet their basic needs. But then you're also discriminating. Um, and that discrimination is more widespread than just the targeted community, that it also affects religious communities, which we have an amendment that protects the right mm -hmm. to practice our religion. And so I don't understand how any town, city, I, I know that there's some panhandling ordinances that are being discussed at some of the town levels. And I, I just don't understand how a policy could be considered legitimately when it has the potential to marginalize people based on their religious practice. I think that that should be the first step of saying like, this is in direct conflict with our Bill of Rights. Not to mention the right of free speech, where I can stand and hold a sign as long as I want. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm on a public space, there's no law that prevents me from doing that. Um, and I think that's important to remember. Like, Just because you and I can come into a radio station and exercise free speech, you know, so should anybody else out there. Um, I think that that is one of the rights that has set us apart from a lot of the more disadvantaged parts of the world is our ability to congregate, to come together as people, to be able to openly discuss these ideas without the fear of recourse or political reaction. Um, and I think that when we begin to consider policies that undermine these basic philosophical ideas, that we start to tread a very dangerous path away from liberty. And that to me is not what the founding fathers and so many hundreds of thousands of Americans and at this point, millions of Americans, um, certainly my brothers in arms don't consider those ideas as something that they're worth, that are worth putting their lives on the line for mm -hmm. people sacrifice their lives in the military today to protect Liberty. I mean, when we take that oath, when we go into the service, that's what we swear by. So when we, we start to backpedal and say, well, we mean freedom, but only freedom for these people. Well, who are the people serving in the military? Overwhelmingly, it's the people from the very same class of people that struggle with housing, with meeting basic needs. 
It's not the people in the hierarchical governments. It's clearly a lack of representation of our mm-hmm. needs. When we have a presidential campaign that runs at a billion dollars to become president, how does that reflect the average American it when we make $50,000 a year at a median? And that's on a high median. Yeah. And that's falling. And when you look at adjustments for inflation and you look at cost of living adjustments, we're actually making less now than we did during the Great Depression. Due to inflation, yeah. Well, inflation and, and inflation cost of living adjustments other. and other things that you know we have to spend money on just mm-hmm. to meet basic needs. Um, and I, I think that it's something frightening. I looked at another statistic, and I, I love statistics, and, and I, I see a lot of them, and I really have to look at where they came from and who published them. Um, and so this, this statistic had, had come out... Um, and I'm trying to remember, it was from the federal government, their Department of Statistics. They, they have a special department for it. And they were looking at savings. And two-thirds of American families in this country did not have a significant enough savings to be able to weather a significant crisis. And the way that they determine that is if you have enough savings to pay for three months of all of your regular monthly expenses. Two-thirds of the country are literally one crisis away from not meeting those basic needs, which is Mm -hmm. the situation we see with homelessness. Um, It's frightening to think that there's that precarious of a balance that people are juggling month to month, and it's a majority of people are struggling month to month. What do you think can be done about this? Do you think it's an issue of education properly educating people on handling their money well or you think it's just like a total issue with the economy and that nobody's making enough to properly support themselves in any case i think it's a combination of things Mm -hmm. i think that um you know we've looked at housing subsidies and affordable housing and wage structures it's a very incredibly complex issue yeah um But certainly one of the major blows to the structure that has been leading into this has been NAFTA. Um, The establishment of NAFTA allowed for a lot of corporations to freely move jobs away from the United States. And it was a transition that we couldn't avoid. It was something that with our environmental standards, the companies that were here were not able to compete very well in the Mm -hmm. world market. And so I think that strengthening relationships with third world countries and empowering them to raise their wage structures. So this is why I wanted to bring up that issue about how what happens to the other people also affects me. Mm -hmm. So when you empower wage standards worldwide, then you create an like an equal climate for competition. So like when you give the company an ability to go to another country and take part in exploitative practice, um, then they gain an unfair advantage in the market that hurts the people that they're employing in the country they're in. It raises them slightly above the standard for where they're at because Mm -hmm. the standard is so low. Yeah, countries like China, Indonesia, yeah, Thailand. Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing happen. But it drives down our product, like our goods, our costs go down. So we're able to see yeah. some adjustments in price. But the problem is, is there aren't there isn't a, a created labor market that's come up in place of 
industrial production. Mm -hmm. So where we traditionally saw a lot of growth because we were producing, now predominantly we're consuming. Yeah. And producing in just a few sectors. Yeah. And and so really focusing on two things, empowering world economy and working to improve wage standards worldwide, um, I think will undo a lot of the harm that was done when NAFTA was passed without those supports in place. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, e- ecology standards. That's another major one. We've been seeing a lot of issues with weather patterns in Japan and China, and there's a lot of concern around that, and there's very validated concern around that because it's the reason why we put environmental standards in our own oh, country. Yeah. It'll be so bad in Chinese cities they'll have to wear masks yeah. just to walk around because of all the smog. Oh, that's crazy. It's absolutely tragic. Um, and there are you know, people like you and me living in these cities that have to do this. And so we're not so far removed when we look at ourselves as members of the human race. And what we do in one part of this planet affects all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being able to take responsible business practices here at the consumer level. So being able to identify those areas where businesses are being exploitative and advertising that to people, raising awareness, educating people around whether or not they really should think about participating with these particular businesses. It's it's kind of like a philosophy and a mantra that I've internalized to my own life mm-hmm. to a significant degree. And, you know, I go out of my way to go to the food co-ops and I live in a facility now which has a winter farmer's market and I'm surrounded by other crafters and private businesses and like small businesses. Like mm-hmm. I live in a live work studio at the Hope Artiste Village, which is an incredible experience. Um, there's so many people being innovative and creative and generating local business. I feel like there's so much that can be done. When I visited Humboldt County, I saw a really excellent example of what life looks like without the influence of international corporations because they don't allow it. Hmm. How did that whole thing work out? They have local businesses that came up in place they're largely self-sufficient. Now, mind you, they exist in the breadbasket, mm-hmm. so they have an abundance of a lot of things. But I, I, I feel like that as we develop stronger local economies, we can develop resources of exchange locally that would cut down on consumption from transporting goods. It would disempower the companies that are engaging in exploitative practices, and it would strengthen local economies. I mean, you think about every time money changes hands locally, this is what happens. You're paying taxes like three to four times. Because that money stays local, you're doing this recurrently. You're keeping more money in your tax budget. You're able to put more money into programs to support people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you spend your money at a Walmart, that money gets paid tax on that one time. And then it goes overseas and it never sees a tax circulation again. Right. That money's lost at that point. So I, I think really understanding that as part of the cost-benefit analysis um, in doing business with corporations, I think that's another big component in being able to turn around a lot of these complex economic issues that are causing people to become homeless. Mm-hmm. So you think that... Um Raising these wage standards across the world would eventually bring back tons of jobs to our own soil where all these people in homelessness could eventually be employed. 
I think that so that's that's one part of the solution, I suppose. It's it's not the band-aid on the solution and the way that we focused on it now is from a harm reduction perspective mm-hmm. because we've realized that once people enter into a crisis like homelessness, their ability to engage in significant gainful employment is extremely low. So their turnaround from those situations and like the vulnerability to become chronically homeless um, becomes another issue, right? So um, being able to improve economic conditions obviously increases like the overall health of the the economic market. Yeah. Yeah, like across the board. But at the same time, like we have to be able to deal with crisis situations using crisis interventions and a homelessness situation is a crisis, no different than somebody suffering from a stroke. Like we don't deny people treatment because they had a stroke. It's not something they could do anything about. Like you need a professional to come in and work with you and retrain you to live with a new way of living based on whatever happened as an outcome. My dad had a stroke last year. And so he's worked with tons of therapists to try to rehab all of these different skills. Mm -hmm. So in a similar fashion, homelessness is a crisis that impacts your ability to function within that society. And you need support resources to rehab that ability. And the first and foremost of those is being able to have a safe living space. Like when you're not safe, you're put into survival mode. And once you're in survival mode, your ability to engage in a lot of the critical thinking around like improving like higher states of functioning and engaging successfully in economy and and in a planful manner, Mm -hmm. um, those become severely diminished. And so housing people first has really brought out um, a new way of thinking about an old problem that focuses on reducing the harm to the individual it also reduces the systemic costs. You know, one of the things that the HMIS system has really been successful in, especially working with Eric at Providence College, Eric Hirsch, he's the, the state statistician, so to speak, um, that, you know, the costs are really high because people go to ambulatory care, people go to walk-in centers, people go to the, the hospital, and a lot of these things are preventable. So harm reduction is this idea that we can do something first to prevent further harm, which helps everybody because it reduces the burden of costs. It helps out taxpayers. It puts money into more needed areas. Mm-hmm. Like, why would we be paying for somebody to go to the hospital every month when that money could just as easily go to putting them into housing and mm-hmm. taking them out of risk, giving them opportunities to become productive citizens and contribute to the right, system right. and not be a further burden or put themselves in danger. I mean, to me, it just makes sense. So essentially easing them back into society, you know, getting them out of a climate where there might be drugs, disease, other crime going on, such as that, sort of, or just... Well, I think that low-income areas are particularly affected by that issue, and I don't think that placing people in housing stops all of that. Mm-hmm. But what happens is, is people have, like a steady base to work from. So when you're homeless and you're outside, your immediate thoughts are food, water, shelter. Mm -hmm. And that drives your day-to-day interactions. Right. So when you house somebody, fundamentally, that thought process changes. 
now you can open somebody up to working with case managers around working towards getting employment. What are your barriers to employment? Right. You know, what are these different program things that you can do to advance yourself and become self-sufficient? Like those conversations don't even begin to happen until people get housed. Yeah. Because we found by and large that people are not successful in those areas. There are exceptions like Mm -hmm. in everything, but by and large, you know, people are concerned with their safety first. Right. And that's like every other American. It's like, you know, <laughs> your, your basic in- instincts are just kicking in. You're on the streets. Yeah. You can't think about a job or going out on a Friday night or, uh, you know, watching a football game on TV or something like that. You just have to worry about your food your water, and if you're going to have somewhere to sleep at night or not. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I get that point you're making. It's not easy to just jump right off the streets and hop into a job and then go from there. Well, you have to be able to develop an understanding of the pursuit of happiness again. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people are really downtrodden, and they feel the effects of a system which has really done them a disservice Mm -hmm. in that they're not able to feel as though they can be successful right in the current system and there are a lot of areas that are at fault for that and and wage stagnance is part but you know wage stagnance is also held down other benefits like social security which is structured as you are paid at less than the lowest earning paid wage earner and mm-hmm. the lowest paid wage earner does not receive benefits that even remotely resemble self-sufficiency um, and so that's why the shortage in subsidized housing has led to a lot of people being homeless, like lots mm-hmm. of people. I know when I was collecting, I still collect, you know, benefits through Social Security. I was able to get eligible for disability. Um, but one of the challenges that I ran into was that, you know, I had to pay child support. I ended up having a kid and they took money out of my check. That was the same as what it would have been if I was working full time at a minimum wage job. I guess that's that's a standard. Mm-hmm. And I was essentially living on $300 a month after they were done taking it out. Like, where can you find a rental? Not even including like toilet paper or toothbrush, toothpaste, mm-hmm. $300 a month. And yeah, it's like nothing. not a, it's not a wonder that somebody in that position would be homeless. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. What can you do? I would go to programs after programs after programs. And I would tell them, this is my situation. Well, have you tried this? Yeah, I've done that. Have you done this? Yeah, I've already done that. There's nothing else that we can do for you. Like walking into an agency as a homeless person and hearing that answer, this this is prior to the movement we're in now. They've mm-hmm. done a lot of work in structuring immediate intervention. There is a shortage in wraparound supports, and that's system-wide. But that's because they're doing the harm reduction approach first mm-hmm. and then identifying what the needs are for wraparound supports and then working on structuring those going forward, but getting people into housing. So to bring this back to the event, which is why we're here sitting, um, I wanted to be able to give students an experience that mimicked what it was like, the challenges that people face being outside. And so we're going to go camp out. Students are going to have to bring their own tents. They're responsible to bring their own cold weather gear. Now, me being the due diligent liaison with the administration i have to make sure that i have extra supplies to make sure people are safe Mm -hmm. but by and large the the whole point of it is is that 
It's November 11th. It's cold outside. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be comfortable. We're going to try to make it fun. We're going to give some people some trainings. We've got a few activities that'll um, kind of move people in an understanding of veterans and field stuff. Mm -hmm. So we're incorporating that. And then there's some, like, um, what do you call it? Crafting classes. Like, Mm -hmm. we're putting together a group of people to do yarn and knitting to, like, make socks to then be able to give on after the event is over. And um, that was basically what I had officially brought because we still have a committee meeting later today to, like, develop our official program. I have, like, an unofficial program, but... I don't want to divulge too much until we get that formal approval. But um, it's looking like, you know, we're expecting teams of four or better to come. They register. There's an online form that I put together. They then get a pledge donation form that goes out to them automatically Mm -hmm. once the team successfully registers. And then they're responsible for getting petitions. So it's a minimum $100 registration. And then with a team of four, it's like $25 a person. They get, you know, access to CPR trainings, cold weather safety trainings, first tra- first aid trainings. Um, those are all things that we have and, active. And um, what is this money going towards? Um, 50% of it is going to the Coalition for the Homeless. Okay. Um, we do have some partnerships. Um, one of the CDCs has reached out to us. And I'm not going to disclose who they are yet because we have yet to formalize that relationship like they mm-hmm. want to. And so I'm just not trying to jump ahead of myself with that mm-hmm. again. Um, but there is some community partnership that's been developed in this project. Nice. I'm really hoping that we're building something between community partners and existing leadership that can get structuralized, which is part of the macro project, to get carried on after we're done here and continue to engage students in understanding homelessness, Mm -hmm. understanding the challenges of homelessness. And really there's no experience like being outdoor out for a night to realize like how hard it is to figure out like, you know, if like you're outside camping and it's 10 degrees out and you're like, I don't know where I'm going to go. And somebody's trying to tell you like, go get a job. It's like, dude, I'm trying to not die tonight. You go get a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me focus on staying alive, and then I'll go get a job afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard to it's hard to picture it if you've never been in the situation. Um, I mean, uh, people generally make the mistake of assuming that everyone who's homeless has made that decision at some point. I guess that's a common misunderstanding. I suppose from your experience, how, how many, what would you say the percentage of people who literally have been left with no other choice, but to be on the streets is versus people who, you know, might've got addicted to something and dropped their entire life due to that and joined the streets. Well, I think when you start to talk about addiction and this is again, where I guess it's a different conversation. Progressive policy is now changing in a favorable direction because that stigma is now being identified mm-hmm. and it's being called out because people who suffer from addiction are not willful, negligent individuals. They're people that are biochemically different from other people and 
can't participate in certain activities and you never find out who those people are until that gun's already loaded. Mm-hmm. And once it's loaded, your ability to control yourself, your very fundamental reactions, your drivers, the things that drive you to survive become reprogrammed into chasing addiction. So that's a whole different piece that, you know, biology is really taking a leap forward in identifying that, you know, in the human anatomy and physiology, people are fundamentally different when they're suffering from addiction. And it happens before they ever used a substance. So understanding that people are just different, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why this issue, the addiction, you know, issue affects people across all classes, across all races. And it's because of genetic difference. And so when we start to look at treating people differently because of the outcome of that, then we're also marginalizing people for being different. It's not celebrating diversity. It's not embracing the values that make us strong as a nation. And I think that, you know, united we stand or divided we fall. I think that is a very, very true statement. And we need to come together on these issues, not point the finger. That doesn't change things, right? So um, I would say that all of the people are out there, not because they would choose to be. Um, There are certainly people who live outside that choose to live outside, and I've done that. And I never considered myself homeless when I was doing that. There was a big difference for me when I was homeless Mm -hmm. and when I was simply just backpacking on the Pacific Crest Trail Mm -hmm. for two years. Um, I felt home more than everybody else I knew because nobody else was home as much as me. I was with Mm -hmm. my bag and that's where I lived, right? So there's a big difference, right? So homelessness is not a choice, I don't feel like. I feel like it's something that's a product of circumstances. And if people had the ability to choose, and we've seen this with the housing first model, that people who are given the option to be housed or not, when you take away all the other barriers and prohibiting factors, they choose to be housed. And that's what we're seeing. It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure um, people listening to this will have a new understanding of um, what it's like. I mean, you see homeless people on the streets every day, and it's kind of sad how they've almost blended in to the city. It's just like, it's like another part of the city. You drive down the street and see someone panhandling, and when you're living in the city, it's like something that you're so used to that it's, it's kind of like numbing at a certain point. But you don't you don't think when you see someone that like each of those people have a story mm-hmm. that's put them in the position where they're at now. They had a family and something must have happened or something wrong with them that's put them in the position that they're in now. Oh, speaking of stories, I think now might be a great time to do that. Yeah. We actually brought a story <coughs> to, to share with you guys today. Um, this is from one of the constituents who was identified through the Speakers Bureau, um, which is a part of the Coalition for the Homeless, where we work with um, homeless and formerly homeless individuals and empower them to share their stories. And so this is a true story. Okay, so most of you have heard my story before. Well, it changed two weeks ago, so 
Um, life before homeless, um, I lived with my parents for until I was 27. And then we moved to Boston, and we got to Boston. We stayed with his friends for a couple weeks. Realized that apartments in Boston are extremely expensive. So we were out on the streets after a couple weeks. I personally loved it. It was fun. I learned a whole lot because it was my first time in Boston and stuff. And me, I'm, a, I'm pretty much an optimist, so I try to make the best of every situation. Well, we went from Boston and we came to Rhode Island. We stayed at Crossroads for two months, I think. And then we went back to New York. Well, Bob had gotten sick, so he wanted to come back to see his doctors in Boston that he's been with forever. So we got back to Boston. What they thought was cancer turned out to be a very, very bad uh, fungal infection in his throat. So they finally got that cleared up and we realized we couldn't stay in Boston again. So we came to Rhode Island because we knew it was close enough for him to go see his doctors yet we still could afford rent and stuff here. So we came here um, in November. January 8th, we moved into an apartment. It was working great. And then April, my husband had a stroke. And that basically changed my life. Turned it upside down. Because it went from him being the talker and the one that gets things done to me having to do everything. Shopping, cleaning, everything. Well, that was going good. And then my dad had a stroke in October. So we went there and I got to say goodbye to him before he passed away. We were going to move back there to help my mom out, but I just couldn't leave Rhode Island. <laughs> so we got back here in the middle of December. Again, everything was going okay. Monday, the Monday of the luncheon, went to the luncheon, came home, started to relax. All of a sudden, heard a fire alarm go off. And I'm hearing it, I'm like, well, maybe they're burning, they burnt their food in the front apartment. And then I, then I guess somebody opened the back door and it got loud. And I went outside, I'm like, what's happening? And then I go to the side of my house and the guy, there's a guy, Cross the street, like, get out, your house is on fire. I'm like, oh, that's great. So I had to go in the house, put my husband in his wheelchair, get my husband out of the house, try to get whatever I could out of the house before I had to actually get out of the house, which was basically his debit card and my phone. <laughs> Red Cross showed up. We got two nights in a hotel. We went there that night. The next day... We had been going through the process of getting an apartment at Pawtucket Housing, so I went and told them what was going on. They said, well, come back Thursday. Me and my husband went back Thursday to go, you got the place. Went to the place, the, la the lady's like, well, when can you move in? I'm like, today? <laughs> then four days, I went from being homeless to being housed. The night the fire started, I had on a pair of froggy pajamas and a pink shirt <laughs> and no shoes 
These I'm borrowing from a lady that lived by me. I'm walking to the store to get a drink and a couple other things. My pajamas on and a blanket around my, my shoulders. I'm like, well, why are these people looking at me like I'm homeless? <laughs> That's when it hit me that I, I was homeless. I'm like, I haven't been homeless for over a year. And then, <laughs> All of a sudden, because two kids were playing with matches and started the match with some fire, I'm homeless again. And it wasn't even my fault this time. And I remember the next day, I'm like, all I wanted to do was go home. I was in the motel, but all I wanted to do was go home because I didn't have anything starting all over again. But thankfully we're housed again, so going through the shelter with my husband that had a stroke would have been extremely tough because at times because he can't really speak for himself. He gets loud when he gets frustrated, so that would have been terrible. But thankfully we're home we're housed now, so Wow, that's a it's uh, a pretty inspiring story. I think um, what we can conclude at the end of this podcast is that you can never be too quick to judge anyone on their past based on their current circumstances. Everyone's got their own issues, whether they're living on the streets or not, and you can never assume that somebody hasn't tried and that. They have no power because um, they have. They have tried. And, Mike, it's been good having you in. It's been good having you having you tell your story. Um, I wish you luck in all your endeavors with raising awareness for homelessness and uh, getting the younger generations involved with being aware of this too, raising money to help them. And I hope you succeed with all of it. Thank you very much. All right, so if you are on the Rhode Island College campus on November 11th, Mike is doing an event where they will be camping out on the quad in order to raise awareness and put people in the shoes of those who are living day-to-day in the streets. And uh, this guy's also got some cool tunes on the internet. If you want to look him up, his name is DJ Bleach, spelled B-L-E-E-C-H. He's got some cool electronic music. You can check that out, too. But um, besides that, I will see you all next week for another excellent edition of Office Hours.